Welcome to Emerge Everywhere. I'm Jennifer Tesher, journalist turned financial health champion. As founder and CEO of the Financial Health Network, I've spent my career breaking down silos by engaging with innovators across industries. And now I'm sharing those conversations with you. Meet the forward-thinking leaders challenging the status quo and unleashing creative new ways of improving financial health by seeing their customers, employees, and communities in 3D. My guest today, Martin Whitaker, CEO of Just Capital, is helping lead the revolution of stakeholder capitalism, challenging the notion of the role of business in society. From a focus on the environment to his boss's suggestion to follow the money, Martin has had a fascinating career across multiple countries and industries. These days, he's particularly focused on the S in ESG and the need for CEOs to invest authentically in their workers and in racial equity. Martin, welcome to Emerge Everywhere. Thanks, Jen. It's great to be here. So Just Capital, your organization, seems so of the moment right now with its focus on helping businesses leverage their potential for good beyond just their products, including livable wages for their employees, diverse and inclusive cultures, ethical leadership, protecting consumer data, health and safety of workers, the list goes on. And yet the organization's actually been around since 2013. Tell us a little bit more about uh, Just Capital's founding story. Sure, sure. So you're right. 2013, um, well, it's funny. The more successful we get, the more sort of different stories there are of our birth. But um, <laughs> uh, so 2013 was the year where Deepak Chopra, Paul Tudor Jones, Ronaldo Brudico, Paul Shiala, Ariana Huffington, Ray Chambers all came together to say, hey, why don't we create a nonprofit that focuses on building a more just economy? And 2014, so that was sort of the idea. Um, 2014, um, I was hired as the founding CEO to basically build the organization. After the financial crisis, you know, we had uh, Occupy Wall Street. We had a, a, a sort of a, a clear moment where you know, it was like a fracture in in society. And, you know, a lot of people just were really bearing the brunt of that of that collapse and continue to bear the brunt, quite honestly, of that. You know, the 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 shock waves of the financial crisis have sort of rippled throughout the economy. And as always, you know, the most vulnerable were hardest hit. And so um Deepak was teaching a course at Columbia on this idea of sort of the just consumer mm-hmm. and, and companies and what role could companies play in actually making the world a better place. And, and it was really a question, I, I believe, it was a question in one of his classes asked by a student who, whose name I don't know, um, that led Deepak to, to sort of wonder, okay, well, could that be true? You know, how could we use the private sector? Could, could companies, you know, really address our most systemic social, economic, environmental challenges. And he took that idea via a few of the folks I just mentioned to Paul Jones, who obviously, you know, knows a thing or two about markets (laughs) and said, well, actually, this is really interesting. And the way he tells it now, Paul is, he actually thought it was a great investment idea, you know, because companies that would do that would be more successful. That was his gut. And sort of like he put, you know, two and two together 
and thought, okay, why don't we start to look at this now from the point of view of a nonprofit forming an organization that could actually do that. And, and his thinking was the private sector is, you know, four times the size of the public sector. It's 40 times at least now the size of the philanthropic sector. So you've got a huge leverage effect if you can change the way America does business. That's not easy, and we'll talk in a moment about how you actually do that. But if you, if you could do that, there was this massive multiplier effect where philanthropic dollars could actually get the private sector to, to, to sort of shift gears. So let's talk a little bit more about what that work looks like um, to get companies to buy into the idea that they should want to focus on building a more just economy. I mean, in a way, that feels almost like table stakes today. So it's important to appreciate just how far things have come in seven, eight years since Just was founded. But I'm really interested in this idea of leveraging what Americans, what people think a just economy looks like. Um, so talk a little bit more about how you do that work um, and particularly the surveying work you do. One of the things I think that we've not done well in the sort of impact sustainability purpose world is connected back to like solving real problems and addressing the challenges that most people face in their everyday lives. It's, it became, a, became, I think, disconnected from that. Mm. And, you know, I think the, the polling brought it back down to Main Street America. And what are we actually going to do here to address the things that matter most? So once we started asking people, what do you care about? Actually, you get back very simple, straightforward, common sense issues like fair pay, uh, pay me a living wage, treat me well, give me a path to open economic mobility. Um, you know, companies should clean up their messes. They should, uh, you know, uh, manage their environmental impacts. They should invest in the communities where they operate um, and so on and so forth. So those were the things that, that, that overwhelmingly, wherever we went around the country, we heard. And I think what was really interesting about Just, what, what Just brought that was brand new to the whole space was, was that connection, the connection down to Main Street. Because at the end of the day, if, if all this ESG, sustainability, corporate purpose stuff is not making the world a better place and that people's lives are not improving, then what's the point? You know, what's the mm -hmm. point? You know, so anyway, mm -hmm. so, I, I, so that's sort of, I think, really important for listeners to understand. You know, we built, uh, a, uh, a public opinion research process over the years that I'm, I'm just really proud of. And I think we have great partners. We've partnered with Henshaw and Berland initially. We've partnered for many years with the National Opinion Research Center at the University of Chicago. Now we're partnering with Harris Poll. And Harris, the, the folks at Harris Research and Analytics are just phenomenal. So we have a small team ourselves. We, we work with, with professional public opinion research organizations. We conduct focus groups in different physical locations. This year we did them virtually, but different locations around the country uh, where we start with a blank sheet of paper and ask people, what do they care about? What do they think of when they think of a just company? What matters? Um, very basic questions. We then, we, we have a series of qualitative polling. So we'll, we'll ask questions about issues, you know, issues of the day. What do you think about, you know, um, companies 
promoting a healthy democracy or addressing worker financial health or, you know, environment or climate. And we then um, have a quantitative set of surveys which attach weights. So we present respondents with a sort of alternate uh, scenarios, company A and company B, and then they pick which is the most just. And then what? So we have all this data. Here's yeah. what people care about. Here's what they think is important. How do you get companies to take action? Yeah, yeah. So, so that tells you uh, tells us like what to measure and how important it is in the model. We then our research team then goes get it goes and gathers the best available data on actual companies. In our case, the the largest one thousand publicly traded companies on how they're actually doing on those issues. Who's the best? who's not the best, you know, how do companies stack up? So we've developed a, a scoring methodology. We've developed uh, a research process that gathers a huge amounts of data. Obviously we're measuring lots of different disparate issues. We're going to multiple sources for that. It's all publicly available. Um, we then show everything to the companies prior to releasing the, the most up-to-date uh, 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 rankings and, and analysis. So the companies get a chance to comment. Many of them give us data. Uh, the growth in corporate engagement has been phenomenal. Companies, I think, really see us as credible and respect what we're trying to do. So they've engaged. So uh, everything's very open and transparent. Uh, you know, if anybody listening to this wants to go to our website, justcapital.com, you can drill down, see exactly what we're measuring, where do we get the data, and then, you know, um, how companies are doing. So we produce a relative, you know, it's basically a big database which tracks and ranks companies on how they're doing on all the key issues. So you're creating essentially a race to the top. The incentive here is no one wants to be last on the list. Exactly. And, and we have made a, a deliberate sort of decision here to focus on, on the race to the top, not, not what, you know, who's worst. So we celebrate leadership. We give a just seal to the best companies. We issue the Just 100 as an index and as a list. We've created investment products that allow investors to invest in the, in the most just companies by industry uh, and overall. Um, so we're, we tell stories. You know, we've got a very strong media presence. So we're always trying to lift up leaders, tell their stories, showcase, you know, benchmark companies and, and do all of that to try and shift the narrative so that, you know, those who want to be better can come to just and figure out how to do that. And that, and that anybody, any market participant, whether you're an investor, you're a consumer, you want to, you want, you want to shop at a company that aligns with your values, like, you know, consumer, you're a worker, doesn't matter. It's all public. And the whole point is like, without that information, like you just don't know, you don't know who's good and who's not good. And so we we feel like part of our role is to supply the market with, with reliable, credible information so that people can make up their own minds what they do with their money and their time and their energy. Got it. So I think you know that I'm actually a former journalist and I often say that running a mission-driven organization focused on financial health is about the last thing I thought I would be doing with my life. <laughs> you, on the other hand, have degrees in chemistry um, and environmental science. So how in the world did you get from there so I think then private equity and now it's stakeholder capitalism. Yeah, I know. Well, now you say that to me, I realize how random that looks. It's there is with obviously with the benefit of hindsight, 
a, uh, a, a through line. And the through line really is me wanting to figure out, you know, how to leave the world in better shape than I found it, how to do some good, you know, with my career. I've always wanted to try and, you know, um, have a positive impact. And the way I, I, I sort of stumbled into that was, you know, I had, as you said, my first degree and then my master's really was in chemistry, analytical chemistry. And I got a job working for an oil company in the environmental department. I was interested in environmental issues, but they wanted to know where all the oil was going when it was spilt. And so I, I helped figure that out. Um, and then I got the chance to do a PhD in environmental science at, in, at Edinburgh in Scotland. And it was in the chemistry department, but I took courses in all sorts of different uh, environmental, uh, social, I was taking courses on sustainable agriculture, world politics. Like I just, I kind of hit my stride, I guess. And that was in the mid nineties. And, you know, my boss at the, at the oil company, when I was taking the PhD, had said, listen, if you want to have an impact, you got to follow the money. And, and I kind of took that to heart. And I, I, around that time, there was also a major UN initiative on on finance and insurance to address to address environmental problems. So I really looked at that hard. And I thought that's what I want to do. You know, I want to be in finance, and I want to use that to make the world a better place. So I became an analyst. I uh, joined Swiss Re in New York, where we were doing a lot of work on climate, on clean energy, and then I moved from there into private equity. I went to work for Jesse Fink and Mark Schwartz at, at Mission Point. We built a private equity fund. We're investing into the transition to a low carbon economy. But so we we were sort of like, you know, we're all about making money and doing some good. And then I began to advise family offices on how to do that. And then I joined Just Capital. So it does make some sense, but really it's all about how to use business and money to really, you know, make the world a better place. Does that make sense? Makes total sense. Listen, <laughs> you're talking to someone who also, you know, whose career is not necessarily purely linear. I actually think that everything is so interconnected that it's those kinds of disparate journeys that are among the most interesting. So clearly, there's been a growing movement away from famous economist Milton Friedman's perspective that companies' only responsibility is to make money for its shareholders. Um, and that, you know, we're embracing this idea that a company is responsible for to all of its stakeholders, its customers, its employees, its suppliers, communities in which it operates, and its shareholders. Now, some say they see a real shift, especially since the Business Roundtable released its revised statement on the purpose of a corporation a couple of years ago. Others warn that it's all window dressing. You've got a really up-close and personal seat to all of this. What's your take? Well, I, I think it's, it's yes and, you know. I think companies are on a journey and, and like anything else, some are real, authentic, actually practicing what they preach. And others are more in the window dressing category and are perhaps, let's say, you could say generously still learning how to, how to, how to be real in this. It's not easy. A lot of these things are difficult, but uh, so I think there's a real spectrum, quite honestly. I, I, I think the, you know, most of the companies we interact with, and we, we have now in our universe, let's say of a thousand companies, we directly engage with about, I don't know, 600. We have several hundred that I would say are pretty close, you know, um, close to us. 
And, you know, we work now with, with business leaders and market leaders overall more broadly. And I think there is a shift happening. I think there is a recognition that to compete successfully today, you have to invest in your workforce. You have to be very cognizant of how you're creating value for all of your stakeholders, including your shareholders. And we're figuring out what that actually looks like in terms of an operating framework. You know, how can we optimize value creation? How do I create value for my shareholders um, over the long term uh, and even over the short term by, you know, investing in these these other business stakeholders? No, no, I've said this many times publicly, but I haven't met one CEO who said, well, you know, I'm not really not interested in the people that work here or the communities that we serve. I'm really only focused on maximizing short-term profit. No, nobody thinks that. Like people, <laughs> I, people really understand to build a business, you got to invest in people. And, you know, I think when you look at where risk and opportunity come from these days, they're very different places. You know, to run a big company these days is very different than it was 20 years ago. So you cannot afford to ignore social issues, purpose-related issues. If you want to have a, an engaged, productive workforce, you must know, well, okay, what are we doing on diversity, equity, and inclusion? Like, you can't have the former without the latter. So to me, all of these things are sort of being worked out and, and business leaders are have an increasing sense of responsibility. And I would include board members in that as well to like figure that out for their own companies. I don't think there's a one size fits all. And by no means, by no means are we saying that companies should not, you know, seek to really create value for their shareholders. This is not a zero sum game. You know, this Jen, like this myth that somehow I can be in service of my shareholders or I could invest in my workers and, and, you know, pay a living wage. Like those two things are either or zero sum game. No, that's just a complete myth. And if anyone's in any doubt about that, I would direct them to PayPal and their experience. We can talk about that. Obviously you and I are partnering on that. Our organizations have done phenomenal work on that. And I think that's a case study that, that, that will, that will, I think create momentum that many businesses will, will uh, see as, as uh, sort of providing a, a, you know, a, a concrete example of that new North Star. So anyway, I come back to, to that. I, I think we, we see business leaders really working hard to try and be better on many of these things and many of them need help. And in many, you know, Just's role in, in many ways can be to provide that kind of help. Got it. Well, we will definitely come back to PayPal, but how important is the business case? Or at this point, is it really being driven by reputation and the broader sort of cultural zeitgeist we're in? You know, at the end of the day, what's got every company making pronouncements and commitments and trying to do more and better? And, you know, have they figured out all of a sudden that there is a business case? Um, and how do, you, how do you sell this to companies? The business case is crucial but the business case isn't a linear thing. The business case matters uh, you know, a great deal when business leaders and directors are interacting with their shareholders, obviously. The business case is crucial for internal, internally allocating capital. 
you know, you're the CFO of a big company, the chief risk officer, and you're trying to figure out, do we invest in new products? So we'd be investing in our workforce. Like, how do we think about a framework that allows us to, you know, create the most amount of value for the, for the company? Um, so the business case is really, really important. But the business case is also complicated and changing. Everything I've just said to you is the business case. There's a very strong business case for investing in diversity, equity, and inclusion and making that real. And if, if you're doing it for window dressing or if you're doing it in a non-authentic way or, you know, for, for your reputation, as you just said, then you're not going to see the fruits of that investment. You know, you, you, it, the business case is going to be, uh, you know, not really, you know, sustainable for you. So I think that's what we're kind of learning is that to produce real results and real outcomes, you have to be authentic and you have to measure progress. You have to figure out what you're doing wrong. You have to be transparent and open with that because all your stakeholders expect that now. So that's that I think uh, those are things that are central sort of defining issues right now for corporate leadership. Yeah, let's go a little bit deeper on the DEI and race equity front. I mean, I don't have to tell you that corporate CEOs are now expected to take stands on a whole range of issues that in the not too distant past, they wouldn't have touched with a 10 foot pole, you know, guns, voting rights, civil rights. Um, and I think it's been particularly notable since the killing of George Floyd and the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, you're doing a lot of work right now on the role of corporate America in race equity um, with some other partners. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that work and talk about how receptive companies have been so far to getting beyond sort of the basics, like I should hire more people of color and I should make sure they advance in the company um, and I should make sure that there aren't huge pay gaps. Those increasingly seem like table stakes. And I think the work that you're doing really takes it to the next level. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, we're we're proud of that. So we we, you know, after George Floyd, we partnered straight away with two phenomenal groups, PolicyLink and FSG, um, to produce a CEO blueprint. You know, so we, we felt like we could bring something to the table in terms of our data. We felt like uh, what you just said that, you know, was true, that many companies wanted to do more than just put out another statement and make a donation to the NAACP. You know, this is, this is like changing, fundamentally changing the way business is done, but there was no, there was no roadmap. So, we thought we, we, we would help to create one. So we, we did. Um, both FSG and PolicyLink had been working in this area for a long time, had a great deal of expertise with, with companies, private companies on, uh, on racial equity, and that coupled with just data and our sort of investment framework and the business case framework, you know, we could, we could create something that would be of real value. And so we've done that. And uh, that work, we've created a, a work stream now that we have some external funding from companies to advance. We're, we actually just released an update to the CEO blueprint. That's now becoming an ongoing uh, roadmap to guide corporate actions. We just have released a tracker, which is tracking how the 100 largest corporations in America are performing across a range of uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion metrics. That, that, that's a sort of a public database, if you will, of companies. That's 
modeled after the COVID tracker that we, we released last year to do the same on how companies were responding to COVID-19. It was a huge success, generated a huge amount of interest. Um, had companies calling us saying, hey, how do, we, how do we get on this tracker? And so we felt like it was the obvious way to go in this area as well. And, and that bringing those two things together is where we're going. So you'll have like a blueprint for what companies can do. Here's specifically what you can do inside your company, within the communities where you operate and in society overall. And then the tracker will have data on what companies are actually doing. And then if, if companies want to say, okay, put your, you know, we, we put our hand up, we want to be better on this, help us do that. You know, that's where our friends at PolicyLink and FSG uh, have, have just that deep domain expertise to support that. So, so that's a work in progress. And um, yeah, it's generated a huge amount of interest, including from investors who, you know, now, it's funny, over the last 12 months, we've seen such a rise and in increase, such a, a rise in interest, I should say, on investors wanting to invest in companies that lead on the S of ESG. And this theme has been, you know, really prominent in that. And so we've launched a, um, a racial equity index with Natixis. We have other uh, work that we've done with big pension funds. So it seems to be attracting a lot of interest from, from investors as well as from companies. That's really interesting. And I agree that, you know, the S in ESG um, is the squishiest. Um, and th that's a frustration of mine. And in, in a way, I think it is a good segue to the work that we're doing together, that our two organizations are doing together around um, worker financial wellness, which in my mind is like the core of the yeah. S. So we're thrilled to be working with you and PayPal and of course the Good Jobs Institute to put the financial health of employees on the agenda of corporate CEOs. Um, and as you already mentioned, you know, Dan Schulman, the CEO of PayPal has been a poster child for this work and frankly, for our broader work in financial health for many years. He was my very first guest on this podcast when I launched <laughs> it last year. Tell folks a little bit more about the work that PayPal's been doing to put the worker at the center and how you ended up working with them to take that story public, right? And yeah. to use it as the influence, the grease to get others to follow yeah, so I'll, I'll tell the story from the point of view of like our interaction with them, you know, and like how that how that grew, which is really kind of interesting. You know, we for years throughout our polling, we knew that um, worker financial health, let's call it, was at or close to the top of issues, regardless of 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 who we polled. You know, mm. um, regardless of income level, regardless of politics, regardless of of race or ethnicity. It was really interesting that paying a, a living wage was was sort of like, and that become a, became a sort of a proxy for, you know, uh, worker financial wellness. Um, so that was always at the top of our list. And we, you know, I, it's funny, I look back in like 2014, 2015, I guess we did our first, you know, national survey work. We did a lot of work that year. Uh, and when we started to talk about living wage and corporations and pay, you know, forget about living wage, just like pay was companies are like, what? You know, that's not an ESG issue. You know, wh why are we talking about pay compensation? Like we don't have a, we don't, we don't think about living wage. In fact, we don't even use those words. Um, 
So it's really interesting how the conversation has changed over the last, you know, six years. Uh, but anyway, so we, we were always tracking companies and it was always one of the most interesting things that journalists and investors came to us for was like, you know, information on that. And we, um, so we, we were really trying to focus on that going into 2020. And we'd done some really, I think, groundbreaking work on, on analyzing companies' levels of compensation and who was good at paying living wage and, and who not. So then we began to forge this relationship with PayPal. And Dan did one of the first quarterly just calls with CNBC. And uh, where we, you know, we, would, we were collaborating with CNBC to basically put CEOs on Squawk Box to talk about all the awesome things they're doing for their stakeholders. And Dan, to his credit, stepped up and was, I think he was the first one. So it was him and Paul Jones on Squawk Box. And in prepping for that and then doing that, that interview with him after, we realized like, wow, this is a phenomenal story here. What they did to, first of all, just understand the sort of the, the economic, you know, the, the, the state of economic health of their employees uh, was really, you know, groundbreaking. And then to like develop a, a whole program to respond to those who were most vulnerable, we thought was just a great blueprint that other companies we were sure would, would want to emulate. And it comes back to sort of, you know, our interactions with Mark Bertolini at Aetna. It's funny, Mark and Dan are both, I guess, on the uh, board of Verizon uh, and, and, Verizon is another great, you know, uh, highly ranked company on, on the just rankings overall. But, you know, Mark, when he was at Aetna, had done a similar thing. He'd, he'd realized that a lot of his employees weren't making a living wage. And once he realized that, he could do something about it, which he did. And so there's multiple stories about, like, okay, business leaders just knowing what the state of their sort of employee base is when it comes to their economic hardship and vulnerability. And then with that knowledge, being able to do something about it. In PayPal's case, lifting wages, lowering the cost of benefits, providing access to stock ownership, financial training, uh, you know, personal financial uh, training and education, all of that. And so, and, and since then, we started to talk to other companies about this and we realized there's, so, there's like a whole community of best practice about how companies like MasterCard, for example, are really addressing preparing for retirement. So there's just... I think we've now created this program with you, Good Jobs Institute, supported by PayPal, now with Chobani, now with Prudential. Others, I'm sure, will be following suit very quickly um, to say, okay, let's let's create a, a, a program where this is this is what this is what, how we do that. You know, this is the this is what we're going to do, and we just have to we have an ask, which is companies, you know take action on one of the three elements of the, of the, um, of the program, but really it's all about understanding this, the, you know, your workforce and then doing something about it. So Martin, if companies want to learn more and get involved, um, where should they go to do that? It's really easy. They just go to our website, justcapital.com. Uh, you'll see it front and center and there's a simple click away and somebody from our team will respond. Terrific. So you were just talking a lot about the importance of leadership um, and some of the similarities, right, between Dan and Mark. I'm curious to know 
your take on the role that leadership plays in all this. Earlier, I asked you about, is this about reputation? Is it about business case? Kind of what's driving it? In my own experience, I find that who's at the top really makes a big difference. Uh, and you know, you're up close with a lot of Fortune 1000, uh, Russell 1000 uh, CEOs. Uh, how important is leadership in the equation and how do we get more Dan's and Mark's? Yeah. Well, you are uh, 100% right. I would say it's, you asked me how important it is. I'd say it's everything. Leadership comes in different forms. Leadership at the top can be inspired by leadership in the middle uh, and at the bottom. And leadership also is sort of manifests itself in different ways as well. So it doesn't all have to be front and center, out in front, on the, in the media, we're doing big things. It can be quiet things that happen privately that they later come to light. And we realize that that actually is, is uh, I think, what's happening in many, many companies. The more we, we sort of make progress at just overall, we realize how much incredible leadership there is within corporate America on many of the things that we're measuring. I think leadership certainly has been tested over the last 12 months. I don't, I don't expect that will change. I think we have a sort of a generational shift happening, a change in expectations of business behavior and performance, a change in understanding of what drives performance. Um, you know, you've only got to look at the growth of ESG investing. I think that's a, a whole new swath of investors coming to market to saying, actually, I don't accept that uh, I, I, I cannot think about social or environmental factors when I'm thinking about my investment portfolio. Even the data, the data doesn't support that anymore. ESG funds have been outperforming non-ESG funds. And if you if you believe Jamie Dimon, for example, who I do believe has been a leader in this area, their ESG report came out last week and he said what you know we've been saying for, for a long time, which is at the end of the day, this is really a proxy for very, very good management of, of companies. So, so I think leadership is crucial. The other thing that, that comes to mind is, you know, it's not so much the data and the analysis and the, the, the sort of the stories of leadership that change hearts and minds. It's, it's, it's sort of like you have to have sort of like this, this shift in mindset, you know, the culture of leadership and the culture of business has to shift. Um, and I think capitalism has always changed and evolved to reflect the values of the society that it serves. That's what's happening now. And, and smart business leaders recognize that. And not just business leaders as well, smart politicians and government leaders. Like we need leadership in government that in, is sort of inspires new forms of public-private partnership on things like worker financial wellness. You know, I wouldn't expect government to be able to do all the, the heavy lifting on that, nor would I expect companies. I think we have to be a bit more creative about how companies and, and the public sector work together to solve issues. That will, that requires leadership too. So it comes in many forms. And, you know, I think one of the things that just can do is keep lifting up leadership as and when we see it, wherever we see it. Martin, thank you so much for joining me on Emerge Everywhere. Thanks, Jen. 
This has been Emerge Everywhere, a Financial Health Network production. I'm Jennifer Tesher, and I'd love to hear your ideas for future guests and your reactions to the show. You can connect with me on Twitter at Jen Tesher. If you liked this episode, please review the show and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about the work and research we do, please visit emerge.finhealthnetwork.org. See you next time.